Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Welcome to America Explained, the podcast which brings you an international perspective on US politics and foreign policy. Today we're talking about a topic where those two things meet, politics and foreign policy. Something that is percolating in Republican Party circles right now, which hasn't got a great deal of coverage outside of the US, it's maybe not something that we're hearing about really in Europe or Australia, but which potentially has a really, really big impact on the foreign policy that the next American president might follow, particularly if that president is a Republican. And this thing that we're talking about is the fact that in Republican Party circles right now, there's an awful lot of debate about the desirability of using military force against Mexico to combat drug cartels who are flooding the US with illegal fentanyl, which is a highly potent narcotic that's causing a huge overdose crisis in the US right now. Often the MAGA wing, like the Donald Trump wing of the Republican Party, tries to distinguish itself from other parts of the Republican Party by saying that they oppose military action. So they're very critical of previous US nation-building efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan, They're very critical of America providing help to Ukraine against Russia. But this case of how they're discussing Mexico right now really shows that they're incredibly willing to reach for the military instrument when they think that it benefits them and benefits their political interests. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about why Republicans are making this proposal to invade Mexico right now. And I'm also going to talk about why it's an incredibly bad idea. Indeed, what we can learn from the history of previous American interventions in Mexico to show that it's a bad idea. So thanks for listening to America Explained. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do tell a friend or consider subscribing to our newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. So I'm going to start by just reading you some quotes from Republicans who have been advocating this course of action towards Mexico. Donald Trump has discussed sending special forces and using cyber warfare to target the leaders of cartels. He's also apparently asked for battle plans from his subordinates to strike Mexico. I don't know who it is who's drawing up these battle plans. Like, is it Rudy Giuliani or like, is it the lawyers that he has fighting the New York Stormy Daniels case. I don't know, but he asked for battle plans, apparently. Reps Dan Crenshaw and Mike Waltz introduced a bill into Congress seeking an authorization for the use of military force that would basically enable the president to use military force against the cartels. Senator Tom Cotton actually went so far as to say that he would be in favor of sending US troops to Mexico to target drug lords, even without asking the permission of Mexico's leader. So all this is a lot to take in, and why are they saying this? Well, I think it's important to realize that the fentanyl crisis combines two things that, while they are absolutely big problems, they are also particularly susceptible to Trumpian demagoguery. So the first of these is the overdose crisis that's affecting the US right now. So overdose deaths in the US have shot up enormously over the last seven years or so. Like if you look at the situation in 2015 and then compare it to the situation in 2021, there's been a rise of some 90,000 overdose deaths over that period and a huge number of them have involved fentanyl. Now, fentanyl is a synthetic opioid. It's manufactured using precursor chemicals in labs 
and then it is sent into the streets of America for sale. Fentanyl is particularly deadly because although some drug users do buy fentanyl by choice, fentanyl is often used to dilute other drugs because it's cheaper than other drugs. So often users don't even know that they're using fentanyl. They might think that they're using some other opioid, which is not nearly as potent as fentanyl is. And then they end up having an overdose because, you know, they can't do like portion control. If you take the amount of an opioid that you usually take, then you know that you can cope with that level of the drug. But if you take fentanyl by accident, then you just get hit by this massively, massively strong opioid, and that causes people to die. This has become part of this discourse around what are often called deaths of despair in the US. So deaths of despair refers to the phenomenon that in the last few years, US life expectancy has actually been declining, which is almost unheard of for an advanced nation of, you know, the level of economic development that the US is in modern times. And one of the principal reasons why US life expectancy has been declining, because there have been a, an uptick in deaths by suicide, by drug overdoses, and by alcohol-related causes. And these types of deaths disproportionately affect white rural areas that disproportionately affect lower income people. And deaths of despair has become kind of a, a course that is often used to buttress support for Donald Trump because Donald Trump is said to care about these people. So, you know, he's the guy who represents the undereducated rural white voters and he stands up for their interests. So you can really see that the MAGA wing of the party wants to seize on something that they see as affecting really like what's the base of the Republican Party today, which is these lesser educated white voters, many of whom are rural. Now, as I'll talk about later, when Donald Trump was president, he actually did almost nothing to, um, you know, address the overdose crisis. So Actually, the emergence of this crisis dates to his presidency. It was under his presidency that you saw this enormous uptick in overdose deaths and in deaths of despair. But anyway, the logic that, that the MAGA movement uses is to say that Donald Trump cares about these people so he can solve this problem. The second really important feature of the fentanyl crisis is that it does actually have a significant international dimension. So as I mentioned earlier, fentanyl is manufactured in labs. And at the moment, much of the fentanyl, which is on the streets of the US for sale, comes from just two cartels in Mexico. And they often manufacture it using chemicals that they source largely from China. That's the judgment of the Drug Enforcement Administration of the US anyway. So when you have a social problem that is predominantly affecting the Republican Party's base of voters, and you have a way to blame that on foreigners, it's easy to see why the MAGA movement is making hay of that, because it's an easy way to advance their worldview that foreigners, that is Mexico and China, and uncaring liberal elites like the Biden administration, who they say are doing nothing about this problem, that those two forces are coming together to kind of conspire to harm the GOP's base of white rural voters. Now, what they don't talk about, of course, is the fact that when Trump was president, he didn't do anything about that either. What they want to do instead is to use this to kind of accuse the Biden administration of weakness, say that it's not standing up for the interests of these Americans, and, you know, out-hawk one another by saying that they will take decisive action if Republicans win the presidency in 2024. Now, 
more, much more does need to be done to address the fentanyl crisis. I do think the Biden administration is doing many things right. But I think it's also important to recognize that the solutions the Republicans are proposing and plus the way that they frame this as a problem that can be solved mostly through unilateral action is completely wrong. And we know this because the United States has tried to invade Mexico to get what it wanted before. So the US has militarily intervened in Mexico a number of times over the last 150 years or so. Every time that it's done that, the result has been a dramatic hardening of Mexican nationalism against the United States. And this has often happened in ways which make it much harder to focus on areas of common interest after that happens. Time and again, the US has discovered that the costs that are associated with alienating the Mexican people through this kind of intervention, and also alienating their government and making it harder for the Mexican government to cooperate with the US to solve common problems, these costs far outweigh the small benefits which can be achieved through this kind of unilateral action. Probably the most famous example of this kind of intervention in Mexico was the famous pursuit of Pancho Villa by General Pershing in 1916-17. So Villa was this prominent figure in the Mexican Revolution. Actually, an, an ironic twist in this story is that for quite a long time, the US government, it was President Wilson who was the president at this point, he actually wanted Villa to emerge as the ruler of all of Mexico. He kind of backed Villa during the Mexican Revolution, hoping that Villa would emerge as the strongest person in that situation and then dominate Mexican domestic politics. And so for quite a long time, Villa was an ally of the United States and the Wilson administration provided him with weapons and equipment. You can kind of see parallels here to the history of Al-Qaeda, right? How the US for a time provided support to Al-Qaeda um, in Afghanistan when they were fighting the Soviet Union and then came to regret that later on. Well, a similar thing happened in the case of, uh, case of Villa. Via um, eventually emerged to be kind of not exactly who the Wilson administration thought he was going to be. He was the kind of unpredictable figure who wasn't advancing U.S. interests. So Wilson switched his support to Via's rival, a guy called Carranza. And Via, in response for this, launched a raid on New Mexico and killed over a dozen American citizens. Now, at this point, the Wilson administration had a choice. It could either turn the other cheek and just allow Villa to get away, or it could send troops into Mexico in pursuit of Pancho Villa. Now, if it chose that latter course, it was going to have to do it unilaterally because there was little chance that Carranza, who now was recognized as the ruler of all of Mexico, was going to allow American troops into the country. Wilson chose to take that unilateral option. He chose to send the American military into Mexico to try and, and chase down Pancho Villa. And they spent close to a year kind of tramping around northern Mexico. They bought with them the highest tech military gear, like trucks and planes, which at that time were like new and, and people thought that they were going to revolutionize warfare and make this kind of operation easy. And, uh, but actually, the operation was pretty much completely a failure. The US failed to capture Villa, and instead, these US troops ended up fighting against the Mexican government, against the troops of Carranza, who was the recognized Mexican leader at the time. And the US had to withdraw because basically it was faced with this choice that if we keep our troops in Mexico, then we're going to have a full-on conflict with the Mexican government, and we don't want that. So Wilson ordered Pershing's troops to withdraw northwards. 
Now, I think that you can see here the precise pattern that any US intervention in Mexico would take today. There's this, you know, you can see in those quotes that I read earlier, people like Trump are throwing around, you know, terms like surgical strikes and cyber warfare. And they imagine that America's superior technology would enable it to quickly um, destroy the drug gangs and stop the flow of these narcotics into the US. But that's incredibly unlikely to happen. We've seen in the last few decades how the American military has really, really struggled in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. We've seen that all of the high technology that it has doesn't give it the understanding of a culture and of a society and of a local context to achieve its goals in this kind of complicated warfare against non-state actors. And we also know that any attempt by America to intervene in Mexico in this way would dramatically mobilize Mexican nationalist opinion against America. The Mexican government would feel the need to respond to this kind of incursion. There might even be clashes between US and Mexican forces. And just like Wilson was, any Republican president would very quickly be faced with the choice that either I have to back down from this crisis or I have to widen the conflict, send more troops into Mexico and get bogged down into a counterinsurgency style campaign like in Iraq or Afghanistan. And, you know, if the kind of temporary operation or temporary incursion that America would be able to sustain might, you know, possibly slow down the flow of drugs temporarily, but eventually the, those American troops are going to go home and they'd leave behind them a really, really alienated society, a government that hated them, a nationalist opinion that hated them. And that would just make it so difficult to then combat those cartels again in the future. You can imagine in that situation that the flow of drugs would just resume. It might even increase. The power that the cartels would hold over society would probably increase. And the US would be right back to where it started, but actually in a significantly worse position. Now, you might argue that a Republican president wouldn't actually be this stupid. They're not really going to invade Mexico, but there are actually other things they might do. And after the break, I'm going to talk about how in 1969, at the beginning of the war on drugs, Richard Nixon tried a slightly different but very confrontational approach with Mexico and why this would also be a bad way for Republicans to go about trying to achieve their goal. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. So you may remember that during the Trump presidency, Donald Trump would intermittently make this threat to completely close the US-Mexico border. Usually when he was making that threat, it was to do with the immigration. He was trying to kind of coerce the government in Mexico to do more to crack down on the flow of people north over the border. And he would say, if you don't do this, I'm going to close the border. Now, he never followed through on this threat at all. And the reason he never followed through on it was because it would have done enormous economic damage to the US as well as to Mexico. Cross-border tourism and commerce is now worth something like $500 billion a year and millions of people cross that border every day, closing it down would just cause this huge like economic crisis in, in border communities. 
and disrupt all kinds of logistical chains and, and you know stuff that's important to the U.S. economy. Now, Trump never did that, but actually there is a president who once did do something very close, and that president was Richard Nixon. In 1969, when Nixon had just come into office, he was inaugurating the War on Drugs. This was a campaign pledge that he'd made, so Nixon made this famous speech in Anaheim where he said that he was going to declare a war on drugs in the US. This was like the 1960s, so it was a time when there was a tremendous moral panic in parts of America about the fact that drug subcultures were starting to emerge, the use of acid and the use of marijuana was becoming more commonplace, although, of course, nothing like as commonplace as it is today. And so this became an issue kind of in the culture war of the time. And actually, like, hilariously enough, the the narcotic that was causing Nixon to have these problems with Mexico and that caused him to pretty much shut down the US-Mexico border wasn't heroin, it wasn't even acid, but it was actually marijuana, a substance which is now legal in 21 states in the US. But at the time, marijuana was seen as this really, really corrosive force for society. It was seen as something that was sickening America's youth. And there was often a belief that marijuana was what's called a gateway drug, that basically if people took pot, maybe that wouldn't harm them that much. But you turn your back on them for a minute, and then before you knew it, they'd be taking heroin. There was this kind of marijuana to heroin pipeline that people thought existed where, you know, it was really necessary to stop people taking pot in order to stop them moving on to harder drugs later. So in 1969, Nixon um, announced these and and put into action these new really, really harsh measures on the US-Mexico border, supposedly without really even consulting with Mexico, without giving Mexico any warning that this was going to happen. He suddenly increased massively the inspection requirements for vehicles and for people that were crossing from Mexico into the US. So whereas previously, and and this was a very different time, at, at that time, something like every 19 out of every 20 vehicles that came into the US from Mexico wasn't even searched. And Nixon instead instituted mandatory searches that had to last at least three minutes of every single vehicle coming over the border. He also stepped up requirements for inspecting and searching people as well. And this created what, what has been called by one study that looked at this incident a, quote, instant nightmare for millions of legal commuters and commercial traders. If you've ever been to these communities on the U.S.-Mexico border, what you realize is how intertwined northern Mexico and the southern U.S. are. There are many, many examples of what are essentially twin cities, like San Diego and Tijuana, for instance, um, like Juarez and El Paso, where they're just very, very interconnected social economic units. And this policy had that effect of basically severing those connections. So, so many people cross that border for work, goods, and cross that border every day to be sold in either the US or in Mexico. Logistical supply chains depend on on the openness and speediness of that border. And Operation Intercept, which is what Nixon's effort was called, just severed all of that, made it so slow that trans-border commerce just couldn't really happen anymore. Now, 
This operation wasn't actually very successful intercepting drugs at all. It, it didn't really net that much in terms of marijuana seizures, but it did lead to real outrage in Mexico and the US. The Mexican government believed it hadn't really received any warning that this operation was coming. And many Americans opposed the policy as well, thinking that, you know, just the, this very incremental increase in the amount of marijuana that was being seized at the border wasn't worth the enormous economic damage and the damage that was being done to America's relations with Mexico. And actually, former Republican presidential candidate Barry Goldwater said that whoever ordered this operation, quote, must be a mental retard. The next administration obviously didn't view itself as full of mental retards and they claimed that actually they had like a secret goal in this operation that everybody else was just too stupid to see. They said that what this operation was really about wasn't seizing more Mary Jane, but it was about coercing the Mexican government to cooperate with the US on counter-narcotics efforts. And it is actually true that in the aftermath of this operation, the Mexican government did agree to join the US in an increased anti-marijuana campaign. But the damage that was done in terms of fostering long-term resentment of the US and this kind of unilateral action only made future cooperation much, much more difficult. And this kind of, you know, so Republicans might look at this and they might say, oh, well, at least we could kind of, you know, coerce Mexico into giving us some kind of short-term win here. But I, firstly, that's not worth the long-term damage that it does to US-Mexico relations. But also, this same gambit isn't likely to work today, not just because of Mexican nationalism being so strong today and, and there been so much resentment already of US interference in the drug issue in Mexico, but also because the economic interconnection that exists between Mexico and the US today is way, way advanced of that which existed in the 1960s. So even in the 60s, the US was only able to maintain Operation Intercept for a few tens of days because the political and economic pressure became so great. But nowadays, it's hard to even imagine it lasting that long. You know, it would be such an act of the next Republican administration shooting itself in the foot to do something like this, that it's very, very, very unlikely to imagine it would happen. And if it did, Mexico could just kind of, you know, shrug its uh, shoulders, complain about what was happening, and wait for the economic pain to force America to change its policy. So I think that if if we look at both Wilson's intervention in Mexico, which I, I discussed before, and what Nixon tried, which wasn't an intervention in Mexico, but it was kind of a unilateral attack on the Mexican border, I think we see that the only way that you can really sustainably tackle the drug problem is through cooperation with Mexico. Drug trafficking is always going to be a really contentious issue between Mexico and the US. Mexico views the issue as basically a pretext for America to interfere in its own internal affairs and have a way of violating Mexico's sovereignty. And America views Mexico City as kind of uncaring and obstructionist and, you know, they just don't help us with this policy because they're corrupt or they um, hate America or something. But that that's the kind of fundamental dynamic here that there's a lot of distrust between the two sides. So what you have to find ways to do is to work with and against that distrust. Try to tamp down that distrust. Try to build a space of cooperation. And threats and violence really only escalate that dynamic 
and make things much worse. And whatever short-term wins you think you can get from, you know, increasing the amount of fentanyl that you seize at the border for a couple of weeks is not going to be worth the enormous damage that you do to the possibilities of cooperation in the future. And I actually think that in tackling this problem, the Biden administration has had basically the right approach so far. And they've actually done a lot in the last few months to really step up the way that they're tackling this fentanyl issue. So just last week, they announced a huge new array of financial and criminal sanctions on key individuals involved in the fentanyl trade. So that's not just the leaders of the cartels, but it's also other people and other commercial entities that are involved in bringing these precursor chemicals from China and then processing them in Mexico. And the US is also trying to step up its cooperation with Mexico, even amid this harsh rhetoric from Republicans. And they're also, crucially, and this is the bit that the Trump administration just never really even attempted to do, they're taking steps to address the drug problem at home as well. So they recently approved Narcan, which is an anti-overdose medication for over-the-counter distribution. So there should be Narcan in like every restaurant, every bar, every hotel, every airport, every public place in America, because this is something that can be given to somebody quickly when they're experiencing an overdose from fentanyl and it can save their life. So getting Narcan out there into America, into society, getting it normalized is really, really important. And the Biden administration is taking steps to do that. Now, when you compare this to what Trump did, the contrast is really, really clear. The Trump administration didn't even come up with a national drug control strategy in either 2017 or 2018. That's something that they're required by Congress by law to come up with, but they never bothered to put together this integrated approach that links up different agencies of the government to try to solve this problem. Another thing that Republicans did under the Trump presidency and that we can well imagine that they're going to do in any future Republican presidency as well is to continue with this goal of dismantling the Affordable Care Act and taking away healthcare coverage from Americans. And the ACA alone funds about 40% of opioid addiction treatment in the US. So if you get rid of the ACA, suddenly people can't access the care that they need to overcome opioid addictions. That makes them more likely to die of overdoses. It makes them more likely to end up taking fentanyl. So the Biden administration has this kind of not very sexy, not very quick series of incremental steps that it's taking to try to address this issue and try to get the whole of the government to do something about it. Now, it's much easier to just say, well, we'll just go and invade Mexico and that will solve the problem. But it's such a simplistic idea that you can just use the military to solve this kind of problem. And if the MAGA wing of the Republican Party had really learned the lessons from Iraq and Afghanistan that they claim that they've learned, they would not be proposing that the US do this because they would realize that a military intervention in Mexico would just end up even more contentious, possibly even more bloody and even more disruptive for the US than the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan did. And, you know, the, the moral dimension to this issue should not be ignored either. I kind of haven't really talked about it that much in this podcast because I'm not really sure that MAGA Republicans are susceptible to this kind of argument. But, of course, also the, you know, the specter of the US 
using its military power to bomb and attack and invade Mexico, its smaller, weaker neighbor, would be a horrific spectacle for the world to see. It would be a horrific um, dragging of America's reputation through the mud. And at a time when the US is trying to compete with China for the alignment and for the alliance of Europe, of smaller countries in Africa and Asia, this would just be a terrible message to send to the world that this is how America thinks it should solve its problems, not through cooperation, but through this kind of unilateral, destructive, and ultimately futile military action. So, I think we've got to recognize that Republicans are talking about bombing Mexico because they think that it advances their worldview. They think that it gives them a way of accusing the Biden administration of weakness, but not at all because it offers any kind of solution to the problem of the drug overdose crisis in America today. Thanks for listening to this episode of America Explained. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'm going to be back with Catherine in two weeks for another great episode. So we'll catch you then. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to America Explained, which is brought to you by host Andy Gawthor and researcher, editorial assistant, and sometimes co-host Catherine Wood. If you like America Explained, please consider checking out our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. That's all for this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.